One pastor recalled the opening pages of Rebecca DeYoung's book, Glittering Vices, in which she said this. In the first year of my professional training in philosophy, I found myself wondering if I belonged somewhere else. Everyone in my classes seemed so smart, so witty, so well-read, so eager, and able to ask brilliant and insightful questions. I felt like an imposter. How did I, obviously an inferior, get admitted among these people? How soon would they find out who I really was or wasn't and quietly shoo me out the back door in disgrace? Partly, I struggled with genuinely difficult philosophical text and with some difficult life circumstances. Mostly, however, I struggled with my own sense of inadequacy. So instead of engaging in class discussions and seeking out opportunities to improve myself, I spent my first year pulling back into the shadows, believing that I had nothing much to contribute, hoping no one would notice when I wrote something or said something stupid. A few years later, while reading Thomas Aquinas on the virtue of courage, I happened across a vice in which he called pusillanimity. It's a real word. Which means smallness of soul. Those afflicted by this vice, he wrote, shrink back from all that God has called them to be when faced with the effort and difficulty of stretching themselves to great things of which they are capable, they cringe and they say, I can't do that. Their faint-heartedness comes from relying on their own puny powers and focusing on their own potential for failure instead of counting on God's grace to equip them for great kingdom work. Dion goes ahead and writes, Picture Moses at the burning bush. The future leader of Israel called to lead them in one of the greatest episodes of their history, the exodus from Egypt, and Moses stands there stuttering, saying that he's not qualified, and he asks God to send Aaron instead. Reading Aquinas' account of this vice of pusillanimity, I felt like I was seeing myself in the mirror for the first time. It gave a name to my struggle one that made sense of my anxiety and my sense of unworthiness. And at the same time, the biblical portrait of Moses presented inspiring evidence that God's power and grace can transform even or especially the weakest and most fearful among us. Moses' pusillanimity did not have the last word in his life. God did. Perhaps you've failed to step back from our study over the last six chapters throughout the book of Exodus to just recall how much grace God has graciously given to Moses in order to grow him. The, the last six chapters are just evidence after evidence after evidence. And Moses has not yet arrived. And Moses will still struggle, and he's in need of more growth. But Moses, at, in Exodus chapter 7, is different from the Moses that we met in Exodus chapter 2. We'll continue to see this growth happen uh, throughout the rest of these chapters, particularly in these action-packed events of chapters 7 through 12.
And as I've just considered and recalled God's grace to grow this flawed man, I've been encouraged to just look around our church and to just see God's grace growing and working and maturing people that by His grace are different today than when they first arrived. And if I can just call you, church family, to look. Look for evidences of spiritual growth in the lives of one another. Spouses, look for evidence in your spouse. Parents, look for evidence of spiritual growth in your children. Children, look for evidence of spiritual growth in your parents. Friends, look for evidences of spiritual growth in one another. And the thing that's been required of God in growing Moses has been patience. Covenant Life Church, let's exercise patience as we watch the Lord work and grow us, one another. It's life-giving to encourage one another. And so where you see evidences of God's grace and maturing brothers and sisters that you have been doing life with in this church, take the time to just say, I thank God for the growth that I have seen Him work in your life. I mean, what church has too much of that? Oh, that covenant life would be rich and busy in tracing evidences of His grace. And so let's seek to be a church that does that too much. And I would even encourage you, by way of just clear application, who is one person that today you could encourage by saying, by God's grace, you are not who you once were. And by way of reminder, this same power and grace that has changed Moses stands available to change you and I. That's the beauty of the God who never changes. Even if you are the weakest and most fearful in the house this morning. Even if you struggle with pusil, animity, smallness of soul. My prayer is that the sermon that is preached put in the hands of that gracious and merciful God who works his purposes out in us and matures us and grows us, that he will use this sermon to help you become what you cannot imagine when left to your own efforts. And so let me pray to that end. Our gracious God, meet with us and change us, we pray. We have an opportunity to sit and to behold God Almighty. Let us not miss the wonder of who you are. In the name of Christ, amen would invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, to the passage that you just heard read. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 is where we'll be this morning. The last few verses of Exodus chapter 6 picked up the story that sort of took a break in Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. If we were to go back and just think about Exodus chapter 6, Moses is a dejected and hopeless man at this stage in his life. God had called him to go to Pharaoh, to speak to Pharaoh. Moses went to Pharaoh. Not only did Pharaoh not listen to him, Pharaoh then increased the slavery, the oppression of God's people. And so Pharaoh was hardened against Moses. 
God's people turned on Moses, says, what in the world are you doing? You're supposed to be leading us, and yet now you're making things worse. And Moses turns to God and says, why in the world would you call me to do this? I cannot do what you're calling me to do. And then Moses provided a genealogy. That's what we talked about last week. And how the genealogy moved us really from a point of crisis to a place of confidence. Well, the end of Exodus chapter 6, right before our verses today, it's the same. It, it picks back up on where it was left off in 10 through 13. And so in verses 28 through 30, there's this rehashing of Moses' objections and his fears. And let's be clear, they are great. Moses has great objection and Moses has great fears. Everywhere he looks, it seems that there are insurmountable obstacles. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7. And there's one main theme that dominates not only our passage this morning, but also it will be the anthem for the next several weeks as we get into the plagues that the Lord performs. And that main idea is this, that God's power is greater than all other powers. God's power is greater than all other powers. And so Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, really is this showcasing of God's greater power. There's two sections that I believe will help us see just how God showcases his greater power. We'll begin with the first one. The first section is this. The Lord's plan will come to pass, verses 1 through 7. The Lord's plan will come to pass. Verses 1 through 7. And so how is it that God is going to showcase his greater power? Well, this is what we find. With mind-blowing accuracy. The Lord again tells Moses what Moses is to expect, and he tells Moses what will take place. And you either can finish reading through the book of Exodus, you can continue showing up on Sunday morning, you can do both of those things, but at some point, you're going to have to go, is what God says here in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, is that indeed true? And the testimony of scripture, the testimony of church history, the testimony of even secular history is this, that what God says here in these first seven verses, it with pinpoint accuracy. This is what happens. And so God showcases his greater power, not by merely being a God who reacts to the things that are happening, but by being a God who says, no, what's going to happen is exactly what it is that I have said is going to happen. And what we have in these first seven verses is just the restatement of the mission that God has called Moses to. It's this reassuring of Moses. And, and, and this restatement and the reassurance isn't merely an exercise of God's power. It's not only God saying, hey, I am more powerful than anything else. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen. But it's also an evidence of his grace. The Lord didn't owe Moses a roadmap of what was going to unfold. And yet in kindness, the Lord reassures Moses that what is happening, as hard as it is, is exactly what the Lord has planned to happen. The outcome 
may have been in doubt in Moses' mind, in Aaron's mind, and in the people of Israel's mind. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the book of Exodus, Moses wants us to know that it was never, the outcome was never in doubt in God's mind. Moses went to Pharaoh once and it seems to have failed. And the Lord reminds Moses again of what's going to happen. I love verse 30. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? And this is what the Lord says in answer. In verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. The Lord answers, This is what I will do for you, Moses. And it's an interesting answer. See, I will make you as God. Your translation perhaps has either like God or as there in italics, showing that it's not even in the original manuscripts. The, the original language and the original sentence reads, See, I will make you God to Pharaoh. Well, this isn't implying that God is going to somehow make Moses God. But it's the, 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 that the Lord was placing Moses in authority over Pharaoh. Moses isn't God. But Moses would speak and act with God-given authority. This is what the Lord wants to do. The Lord wants to humiliate this arrogant and evil leader who thought of himself as God. And God is going to make it clear that Pharaoh is not who he thinks he is. And he's going to do it by doing the unthinkable to Pharaoh. The Lord has chosen this elderly shepherd leading a nation of enslaved people to be God in having authority over Pharaoh. One of the ways Pharaoh would come to know this is that God would provide Moses a spokesperson. Just as all throughout the Old Testament, God had spokespeople who would uh, receive his word and then speak his word. And that's what Aaron would do with Moses. And the command is straightforward. Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you. God is going to showcase his greater power as his word goes forth. And that word accomplishes its purposes. It's what Isaiah would later say in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11. We're speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without it succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Moses had a commission to proclaim the word of God. And we saw the last time that he went before Pharaoh, Moses sought to edit that word. And again... Recognizing evidences of grace, we begin to watch Moses in his interactions with Pharaoh from this point on. And what God tells him to do in speaking to Pharaoh is what he does. He's growing. The Lord's grace is effective in his life. And so Moses is given this commission to proclaim the word of God not to edit the message, but just to proclaim what it is that he says. And as I say that, if you're a follower of Christ, you should be going, yeah, I think that's what I'm called to do. And that is what all Christians are called to do. 
Christians, you have a commission not to make the message that you have received more palatable to people who don't have an appetite for it. You don't have, you don't, you're not commissioned to make it more believable. You're not commissioned to make it more relevant. No, Christians, we have been commissioned to faithfully proclaim the message that we have received from God. Martin Luther was perplexed as he reads Exodus chapter 7. And, and, And the the thing that perplexed him is he, and he wrote, he said, why would God command Moses to do something that was destined to fail? Go speak this word to Pharaoh. Oh, and by the way, he's not even going to listen to you. Luther, in a moment of honesty, which seems like he had several of those, he said, why did God say this? I would refuse that commission and say, no, you go preach to him. And then Luther self-adjusts and says, but the answer is that we are bidden to preach. We're not bidden to justify people. We're not bidden to make people pious and holy. Luther writes, this thought should comfort all preachers. In fact, this thought should comfort all Christians. Only the word of God has been entrusted to Moses, not the responsibility of making Pharaoh soft or hard towards that word. The word is what he is to proclaim, even though no one may want to listen to him. But God says, go on, Moses, and preach. Some hearts and some ears will be closed But if you are a follower of Christ, we have been sent to proclaim the message of who Christ is and what he has done with humility, with boldness, with patience, with courage, and with trust. Entrusting the results to the Lord. Covenant Life, what a week this holy week, to be purposeful in sharing the good news that you have been commissioned to share. And so, brothers and sisters, be faithful in sharing the message and let's entrust fruitfulness to the Lord. And I love the clarity with which the Lord provides Moses about this task. The Lord intends for Moses faltering, despairing, hopeless heart to really be encouraged at this point. Moses, again, think back to Exodus chapter 6, verse 30. Moses asked this question before the Lord. Behold, I am unskilled in speech. Who then will, or how then will Pharaoh listen to me? And in a moment of encouragement, the Lord replies in the first few verses of chapter 7, he won't. He won't listen to you. Here's the thing. If we were to go back and we were just to trace all of the objections that Moses has put forward, what we find is that this, Pharaoh not listening to Moses, is his greatest fear. And the Lord says, I am calling you to an act of obedience that will confront your greatest fear.
The Lord longs for Moses' faith in God to be greater than his fear of others. And here's why. Here's why Pharaoh will not listen to him. Verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Verse 3, I will do this for this reason. I will do this for this reason. I will harden his heart so that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. If I'm Moses, I'm thinking, this is your plan of encouraging me? To call me to a task in which you say you are going to work against the very task that you're calling me to do. But the Lord is kindly encouraging Moses by preparing him for the stubborn resistance of Pharaoh. Moses is not to get the idea that they are going to get the commission. They're going to go in, do a bang-up job. Pharaoh's going to change his, his, his ways, and then they're going to go on happily ever after. Now, that is not what is happening. In his commentary, John Kurtz puts it this way, Pharaoh's heart was particularly important because the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh's heart was the all-controlling factor in history and in society. They believed that Pharaoh's heart was to be sovereign over all things. And so by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is making a theological point. He's saying that, no, I alone am sovereign over all things. Nothing is outside of the purpose of God's will, not even the heart of a king. And so perhaps you read verse 3 and you think, I don't know how this is encouraging to Moses. And if I'm really honest this morning... I think I'm struggling with the fact that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Like, how do I reconcile God hardening his heart with what I know to be true about God? And it begins to lead to questions like, well, if God hadn't hardened, hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart, would Pharaoh then have let the people go? We can begin to chase a lot of what ifs in this passage. I am helped by what Paul does in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul picks up on this reality here in Exodus chapter 7. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so this is Paul then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, bringing clarity on this hardening of Pharaoh's heart in order to accomplish great purposes that would be known throughout all of the earth. Verse 18. So then he, being God, has mercy on whom he desires, and he, being God, hardens whom he desires. And Paul says, so will we, so will you say to me, well then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Why do we say that Pharaoh is still guilty if God has done something? Paul says, wrong question, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate wrath, His wrath and to make His power known, that's God. He's willing to demonstrate His wrath. He's willing to make His power known. What if He endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. What if through the judgment of some, God would bring salvation to others? What if through the judgment of Pharaoh, God would bring salvation of his people? And so I think, would Pharaoh had let the people of God go if, if God hadn't hardened his heart? And I believe the scriptures paint a clear picture, a resounding no. Let's, not, let, let's, let's be clear, no misunderstanding about who Pharaoh was, and let's be clear, no misunderstanding about who God is. D.A. Carson helpfully writes, granted the Bible storyline so far, the assumption is that Pharaoh is already a wicked person. In part, he has enslaved the people of God. And so God does not harden the heart of a morally neutral man. He has pronounced judgment on a wicked man. And he says, hell itself is a place where repentance is no longer possible. God's hardening has the effect of imposing that worthy sentence just a little earlier. The just sentence that Pharaoh deserved was given to him a little earlier than expected. And God is making clear that God and God alone has the power to deliver his people. That there's not an obstacle that will stand in the way. And ultimately what we will see is that salvation, uh, God's salvation comes through judgment. The God of Exodus really is awe-inspiring. And it's going to be clear to all of those that, that He alone is God, and that truth is going to be supported by signs and wonders, verses 3 through 5. The Lord could have forced the release of His people with just a single act, but in order to expose Pharaoh as a fraud, and in order to reveal the true God's inestimable worth, He chooses another way. And, and I love what he says in verse 5. He says, I am going to stretch out my hand, lay my hand on Egypt in judgment of them and bring out my people. And that's what we're going to see over the next several chapters. But look at verse 5. I'm going to lay out my hand in judgment for some, and salvation for others. Why? Verse 5. So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Not the Egyptians will know that I am a God. The Egyptians had plenty of gods. This is the covenant name. So that the Egyptians will know that I am the God who makes covenant with my people and I am the God who keeps covenant with my people and that I am the God who's unlike any other God that they know. 
the Egyptians shall know that I am God. If we were to go back in chapter 4, what we would find is God saying, I am going to act this way so that Israel knows that I am their God. And what begins to emerge for us throughout the pages of Exodus is this missionary heartbeat of God, that he longs for all people to know who he is. The whole book of Exodus is this exhibit on who is this God. It's the question that, that Pharaoh asked in chapter 5, verse 2. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They say, hey, this is what God said. Let the people go so they can celebrate a feast. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Oh, Pharaoh, you are about to find out who this Lord is and why, yes, you should and you will one day obey his voice. You and the Egyptians are about to find out and you will acknowledge the supremacy of the Lord. The Lord did this so Israel would know that they would know that he is the Lord through the provision of salvation that they didn't deserve. And he did this so that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord through the judgment that they richly deserved. You, you think about that. God revealed himself in this way through these signs so that Israel would know there is a God who gives us salvation that we don't deserve. And so that the Egyptians would know there is a God who gives us judgment that we do deserve. Dr. James Hamilton wrote a book called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And he traces this theme, salvation and judgment, all throughout the Bible. This is what he says. Salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for Israel came through the judgment of Egypt. And if we just think about Salvation for God's people at the time when Goliath and the Philistines were standing up against him. How? It came. It didn't come through David. It came through the Lord. Judgment of the Philistines. Salvation for God's people. And this pattern then is repeated into the New Testament. God saves his people by bringing judgment on their enemies. And I would just invite you back this Friday because this Friday we are going to spend time considering in a, in a very focused way the climax of how we see salvation come through judgment. If you're a Christian, that is your tagline. Salvation has come to you through the judgment that you deserved and yet graciously that you did not endure. The cross of Jesus Christ. Salvation will be made possible to all who repent and believe by the judgment that falls on Christ. And those who repent and believe, it's not just the possibility of salvation. It is the accomplishment. It's the securing of it. The cross is the climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment. Salvation for sinners through the judgment of the sinless one. And if you're breathing this morning, praise God, you're alive. But if you're breathing this morning, you've got a problem. You have a sin problem. And you are deserving of judgment. Not because God is mean, but because he's holy. What will you do to rectify your sin problem? Perhaps you're prone to do what the Egyptians would do. 
They would think on this scale, if we were to take Pharaoh's heart and place it on one scale and then take our good deeds and place it on another, will our good deeds, uh, which, which is, is more evil? Which is weightier? Just the bankruptcy of that thought, not only then but even today, that somehow my good works can earn me right standing before God. Friends, we can't be good enough. And even if you could be pretty, 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 pretty good, if you're guilty of any, breaking any of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law, James tells us. Your need this morning is not for a really, really, really close call. Your need this morning is for perfection, and you don't have it. But praise be to God, He sent His Son who does. And that sinless one would endure judgment that was deserving for all sinners. And he would endure the judgment of those who would repent and believe. And so the good news this morning is you may have walked in an enemy with God, but you can walk out as one of his sons or daughters. And you can do it by bending your knee in submission, confessing your sin, turning from your sin, and trusting in the work of Christ alone his sinless life, his death on the cross as a substitute, and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. If you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know the warnings that we read in God's word are meant to provoke your repentance. God's warnings are an expression of his mercy towards you today. Don't stay in your sin. Don't go the way of hardness of heart. And Christian, all of this is meant to, pro to provoke a fresh gratitude of the grace of God. I love how the ESV transfer, Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. Such judgment of Pharaoh magnifies God's grace to a greater degree, for surely Israel didn't deserve mercy and deliverance. What made Israel different from Egypt? One thing. God's choosing and His covenant promise. So it is for us. We deserve God's judgment and wrath because of our sins. The only thing that makes us different from those who receive that judgment is God's sovereign grace. And if, and if you are in that, you can't be more secure. What a gift. And that reality should protect us from both thinking, ah, oh, what do I have to do? But it should also protect us from self-righteousness. I've done nothing. May we be most grateful for that grace. And verse 6 surprises us. Verse 6 tells us they did it. Just as the Lord commanded them. They did it. And then there's this interesting note in verse 7 about their ages. And I believe Moses is bringing attention to who the true hero of the story is. It's not the courageous thrill-seeker Moses. It's not the 83-year-old sidekick, Aaron. I mean, that, these, these aren't the heroes of the story. It's this unflattering and unedited description of Moses' weakness. 
And his repeated emphasis on his protest draws attention to what Moses knew better than anyone else, that it is the work of God and God alone, that God is the hero of Exodus. Their contribution to the Exodus was not their genius. It was not their experience. I mean, what experience did they have? Moses was a fugitive shepherd who hardly qualified in the eyes of Israel. It wasn't in their vitality. It wasn't in any such thing. And we remember then the amount of time that has passed for Moses and the amount of time that God's people have been suffering. He, at 40, he tried to lead God's people, but he wasn't ready. But at 80, he's positioned by God to now lead his people. At 80... And so a word to those saints that are advanced in years this morning. He's not done with you. He's not done with you. Moses would write Psalm chapter 90. He would say in verse 10 that the days of our lives number maybe 70 or 80 years. 80. This is when the Lord began doing the public work that he had prepared for Moses to do beforehand. 80, you are not too old to begin to walk in faithfulness. You're not too old to have a ministry that matters. And if you're under 40, I pray that you would believe that we need, by His grace, the older generation to set the pace and to run the race faithfully before us. Under 40, can I get an amen? Over 40, did you hear it? I mean, like, could you hear it because you're over 40? <laughs> jo- joking, I'm over 40, I'm over 40. I had a hard time hearing it as well. It brings us to our second section. Second section, the Lord swallows up all other rivals. The Lord swallows up all other rivals. We see this in verses 8 through 13. When a music artist is about to release an album in the days ahead, oftentimes they will drop or release a single that will give you a preview of what is to come on the album. In many ways, the plagues, these 10 miraculous works, they begin later in chapter 7, but not here, not not in our passage this morning. And in some ways, this miraculous event that we see really is a preview, a single, of what is to come, what is to be expected. The miracle here isn't a part of those plagues, but it's this foreshadowing. And verse 8 draws our attention to this pattern and a message that we're going to see throughout the next several chapters. Throughout these plagues, this phrase, and the Lord said to Moses, is going to appear every time. And the author is making clear that everything that is taking place, it's not on Moses' initiative. It's not Moses' plan. This is all the initiative of one. This is God's initiative. The Lord is never taken by surprise. Pharaoh is going to request that a miracle would happen, not because he's close to believing. But Pharaoh really believes that these guys are frauds. He thinks there's no way that what they're saying is true, so he seeks to expose them. And the Lord tells Moses to tell Aaron to throw the staff down, and it would become a serpent. And what does verse 10 tell us? That's what they did. 
They did just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. This sign is meant to make a statement that Moses was no ordinary shepherd from Midian. More importantly, this sign was a direct attack upon the authority and the sovereignty of Pharaoh. The the serpent, all throughout history, testified even through archaeology. The serpent was the symbol of Pharaoh's authority. Its likeness would appear on the royal headdress itself. And so this isn't some subtle challenge that God has so ordained that Moses and Aaron are a part of. This is a public challenge to his position and to his authority. The Lord is calling out Pharaoh. And then in response, what does Pharaoh do? Verse 11, he calls for the wise men and the magicians to do the same thing. And in verse 12, they each throw down their staff and they turn into serpents. You just think, okay, this is helpful to know. Uh, a lot of people want to sort of chalk this up as uh, this is some natural explanation, like, kind of like snake charmers. You can grab them in a certain spot and they'll stiffen up and throw them down and then it, they'll kind of come back. That in the realm of possibility, could that have happened? Uh, yes, it could have happened. But these guys aren't performing card tricks. They're not performing slide up. They don't have things up their sleeve that they're pulling out to, to really try to impress people. I believe that these are priestly representatives of the Egyptian gods. And through magical formulas, these magicians are exercising the power of these gods. They're formidable opponents. Just read the book of Acts. You'll find there are other magicians and so, that are they're doing things. You're going, how in the world are they doing that? I believe because there is real demonic forces in which people can appeal to and people can be held in sway by and people can act in the authority of. But I'm thinking about that and just going, how in the world is this possible? How in the world, God, that you're going to say, do this, this is my moment, and then all of a sudden people can come up and they can do the same thing. God, it doesn't seem like the kind of bang that you were looking for. What an unexpected and impressive and potentially even a gross sight that happens next. The end of verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This incident is not insignificant. It's a picture and a preview of what is about to happen. The Lord will triumph over the false gods of Egypt. And this sign alone is going to portray everything that's going to come within the next 10 plagues. God is exercising, God is flexing his superiority and his sovereignty and his power. This is a public humiliation of Pharaoh. It's a public demonstration of God's power over the best that Egypt had to offer. It should have prompted an appropriate response of repentance from Pharaoh. And instead, what we read in verse 13 is, Yet his heart was hardened. He's writing, Moses is writing the the book of Exodus to a people that are wandering in the wilderness. 
And I believe the warning is, Israel, do not harden your hearts. The people of God responded in Pharaoh-like ways following their deliverance. It's similar to what we read in Psalm 95. That if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's what we read in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brethren, writing to Christians, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, you need to give attention to the Pharaoh-like tendency to harden our hearts by continuing in our sin. And if you are in adoptive grace, grace, if you are secure because of the work of Christ, we must still give attention to our hearts. Sin is actively working to harden your heart. How concerned are you about your heart? Are you sobered by this hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Phil Riken says if Pharaoh had realized just how hard his heart was, he would have been terrified. Pharaoh's hardness of heart is a warning to anyone who has witnessed the power of God but refuses to receive his grace. I mean, this is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That this pattern that Pharaoh has begins to characterize the people of God who are going to do the same. And perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, you know what, I've I've never experienced any unusual sign of God's mercy and grace. If, if, If only he would give me a sign, then I would believe, but he hasn't given me a sign, therefore I will not believe. Friend, if I can just encourage you, the fact that you have a beating heart in your chest is a sign of his mercy and grace. Your sin is deserving for the life that you have to be gone. It's a mercy and grace. We are all standing on the trap door of death, and most of us will never know when it's going to open, but we can rest assured that it will open. And if your heart is beating today, that's an expression of his mercy. That's another sign of his mercy. And if you're listening even to this sermon that has gospel truth in it, that's an expression of his mercy to you. The trap door has not yet opened. And you're hearing this morning how you can be made right with God. That is one of God's greatest mercies to you. In God's kindness, your heart continues to beat so that you may hear the gospel, so you may flee from your sin, and you may trust in your Savior. I beg you, if you're not a Christian this morning, do this. Turn from your sin. Trust in the mercy that's there, available because of the work of Christ. May there be an appropriate urgency. And here's the truth, is that if you don't respond... You have no excuse on that final day. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands 
of the living God. And maybe you're saying, if, if I just had a sign that I would believe, I just want you to know, he has already given you the ultimate sign in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. That is the ultimate sign. No one here can say, I lack sufficient evidence as to whether or not he has ever done anything good. There's ever been a sign. No, the Bible says the heavens are revealing the glory of God. And because you're here this morning, none here is lacking the grace of God from the word of God that you've heard preached this morning. And so these warnings are a kindness to you. If you have a desire to turn from your sin and to, to trust in the work of Christ, that is an expression of his kindness and mercy. And so do it today. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And man, what sweet comfort this, this has for Christians. The triumph that we see here that happens in Exodus chapter 7, that will happen in 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the, through the rest of this book. It reminds us of this ultimate triumph that will happen. Where not just God flexes and shows his superiority and power over Pharaoh in Egypt, but where he will flex and show his superiority and power over over our greatest enemy, Satan. The good news this morning is that if you are in Christ, your enemy is a defeated foe. The Lord God, He alone is God. He's without rival. And so that's why we sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. But this, what we see in Exodus, it, it foreshadows, it pictures of what is to come. We hear that language as we see these staffs and and. Uh, we see the one staff that Aaron throws down, and we see that swallow up. We hear that language of swallowing up. We read it again in Exodus chapter 15, verse 12. As the Egyptians are swallowed up in the Red Sea, God provides deliverance for his people through the judgment of his enemies. But that's not the only time we hear of this swallowing up. Because Exodus isn't merely a picture of a, of a earthly triumph, it's a picture of this ultimate triumph, God over Satan, most clearly seen in the resurrection. The resurrection is the public statement by God the Father of his satisfaction of the price that has been paid for sinners like you and me. The resurrection is the ultimate triumph of God over Satan, Colossians 2, 15. And Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all of it leading to this place, that Death, our last great enemy, death is swallowed up in defeat when our dead Savior raises to new life. Exodus is not only the preview of the triumph of God over Egypt and Pharaoh, but it's also the preview of the triumph of God over sin, over Satan, and over our last great enemy, death. His power over sin was vanquished through the crucifixion and his power over death was swallowed up by the resurrection. And if you are a follower of Christ, this puts a new song in your mouth. A song that's meant to be sing, sung all throughout this life and in the life to come. All praise be to this God who showcases his greater power over all other powers.
Let's pray.